0: The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athe Creek Christian Fellowship. Well, let's uh, let's let's go to uh, Ecclesiastes as we continue to study through the Scripture, and um, we're gonna you know pick it up typically in chapter five. But as I forgot, verse fourteen. And uh, I I sometimes wonder, Lord, why why do I do that? You know, little, uh, you know, things where your brain just, just, I don't know. I just went right to 15 and blew it off. Well, I know now why. The answer? Megxit. (laughs) Does anybody know what Megxit is? Yeah. Let's read this verse. It's uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 14. For out of prison he cometh to reign... Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. (laughs) Let's back up verse 13 for a little context. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign. Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. Solomon is saying, man, you know, I may seem rich and, you know, um, dialed as I'm a king, but he's saying, man, I'm really a fool and I'm poor. And uh, it's because he saw the flaw of being a king. It's not all that it's chalked up to be. And so too, uh, Meghan Merkle, uh and uh, Harry, is that the right one? Yeah, those two, uh, they, they are, they're doing a Megxit uh, Meg's exiting you know, uh, England and they're going to move to North America, spend most of their time in Canada because uh, they're kind of done being royalty. Um, I don't know much about royalty and, and that, but I noticed that, um, uh, a lot of people, a lot of women particularly are into the whole royalty thing in England and following the queen and all this stuff. And the queen had a big meeting this week, you know, with, uh, with Megan and, and the family and, uh, they're trying to figure out what to do. And I heard one radio news person say that Megan's the most hated woman in all of England now. Uh, like, it sounds like a lot of drama. But you know the thing is, one thing I'm pretty sure: being a a king or a seventh in line to be the next king, that's got to be kind of a bummer, because you have to stick with all that stuff of royalty, but you don't get any of the real perks of being the head honcho or whatever. Uh, Even if that's a good thing, I don't know. But uh, I'm kind of glad I wasn't born born into a monarchy. Uh, That sounds like a headache. Um, But that's kind of what Solomon's saying here. He's saying, "Man, you know, uh, I'm I'm in poverty and I'm, I'm I'm a fool. You know, even though I'm." I was born into royalty as a king. And it really contributes to the whole idea, the notion of really what Ecclesiastes is about. Everything's a waste of time. Everything's vanity, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. That's what he's saying. And he kind of throws in there the fact that he was born a king. Vanity, waste of time. Uh, and that's, that's kind of contributing. By the way, speaking of, you know, that notion, one thing I'm noticing more than ever, I think. We've all seen it for a long time, but have you noticed how, um, you know, the famous, the Hollywood, you know, elites and what have you, it, it doesn't seem like they're very happy for the most part. In fact, I, I saw this even today, um, uh, an article that came out uh, just, just this morning. Um, in January 2017, 51-year-old UK-based locations manager, Michael Harm, whose credits include Pirates of the Caribbean and that whole franchise, took his own life in London in a hotel room. Uh, Shortly before Harm, he sent a note to a friend that's also in the movie industry describing his work as one of the loneliest jobs on a film, one that came with no HR and he urged more care on film sets and then he killed himself. Um, In the three years since, the tragic, you know, procession of suicides you know, shake shaken the film and television industry and music industry, including, you know, hosts like uh, chef Anthony Bourdain, uh, manager Jill Messick, uh, comic Brody Stevens, Soundgarden's Chris Connell, Lincoln Parts, Chester Bennington, the prodigy frontman Keith Flint, and DJ Avicii. I don't know who he is, um, but he took his own life. Um, this year opened with the news that Ugly Betty creator Silvio Horta, um, 45 years old, had taken his own life. Um, and suicides are rising. In 2017, the US rate was 14 per 100,000 people, up 33% from 1999. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 35, um, according to the CDC. The highest female suicide rate from 2012 to 2015 occurred in the combined fields of the arts, design, entertainment, sports, and media. Those are the highest rate suicide, uh, especially among women. Um, what, a, what a tragic situation. You know, here we are in one of the more prosperous you know, times, economically and, and otherwise, but, but people seem to be miserable. And, and um, you kind of see that wealth and fame, well, it's exactly what Solomon's trying to say. Man, I, I've had all that. I had wealth and fame, power, prestige, pleasure. Like Solomon had all that stuff. And the first six chapters, by the way, of Ecclesiastes, he spends all of his time talking about that basically living for himself and how empty it really is and how empty it really was. And so we kind of pick that up uh, and and we continue here in chapter 5 with that theme. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou art upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh. Through the multitude of business. And a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore, should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams, many words, there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou, God. Verses 1 through 7, we looked at a couple Sundays ago. And we kind of looked at it in the sense of how to go to church. When you go to worship the Lord, watch your step. That's what it says there. Keep thy foot is the first phrase there in chapter five. Watch your step when you go into the place of worship. And there were things that we kind of learned there, themes that we're supposed to watch out to be ready to hear. Um, and come with a, with a heart ready to receive, you know, and, and hear the word of God. Um, also to be slow to speak. Um, and, and that's another thing that's kind of tricky, especially when you're the pastor. Uh, but uh but truthfully, um, the idea is coming to receive and be, and be more calculated and measured in what we say and and with our words and and let your words be few um, by the way, sometimes I think that um you know there's some interesting notions that Christians tend to have, and um, we think that we can speak uh more and more and try to puff air into what we're doing with the Lord or what we are claiming we're doing for the Lord. And I think that's something that we should kind of be careful about. Watch out for. So um, the idea is, you know, sometimes Christians, we, we tend to puff air into stuff. Um, question, does the Lord hear us for our much speaking? Um, there's, a, there's a big trend right now, and I've I got to be really careful here because um, prayer is beautiful and powerful, and we should do more of it. Um, and I love it that there's churches that are doing more and more prayer and fasting. Um, and uh, and that's great. And, and, um, and we should be doing the same. But at the same time, I also have to say something. That there's kind of this thing that we have to watch out for in this attitude of, oh, we're praying a lot. We're, we're doing a whole week of prayer. In fact, I think this church is doing a week of prayer right now. Some of you might even be fasting as we speak because there's kind of a thing right now. And that's great. I commend that. But one of the things about fasting that we have to be careful of is Jesus talked about, you know, kind of not letting people even know you're doing it and definitely not making a big deal out of it and walking around with a sad face. I'm fasting, I'm starving for Jesus, you know. And their eyes are all sunken in and they look like they're going to fall over. Uh, Like, go have a burger. Uh, I I pray better sometimes, I think, with a hamburger. But um, (laughs) no, I'm joking. Um, but, But... You know, it's funny because sometimes we almost can convince ourselves and churches that, that, you know, we're heard by our much speaking. Whereas in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. You know, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. And then Jesus gives us that glorious, you know, the Lord's prayer. And it's simple. And you can pray it in like 15 seconds, but it's powerful and it's meaningful. And, and we have to be careful not to um, think that God hears if we, you know, are praying with much words. Or even fanciful words. You know, some people think if they pray in King James English that somehow God connects a little better. God speaks King James, you know. So thou didst sustaineth all things. You know, and people start trying to flash up their, their you know, sermons and what, or, or prayers or whatever. And it's, it's a mistake. Um, I think that we think we're impressing God or something like that. We have to be careful about that. But he says, let your words be few. Uh, that, that's, and, and Solomon's really right about that particular one as we approach the, the worship of the Lord. And he, we talked about vowing a vow. We looked at that uh, two Sundays ago as well. And especially if you're vowing a vow before the Lord, um, don't defer to, to pay it. Um, but fear God, have a healthy fear of God. That's the idea. So we looked at that. If you missed that, you might wanna you know, go online and catch up on those first seven verses of chapter five. But he continues in verse eight. If thou seest the oppression of the poor... And violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. Marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Now what do you do with this? What is Solomon saying? Well, he's saying something that's true. My question is, why is he saying it? Remember, we have to be careful with Ecclesiastes because Solomon is disconnected from God. And when you're disconnected from God, you're discontented with life. We've been learning that and seeing that here in Ecclesiastes. And, and every, let me put it this way. Everything is true that Solomon's saying in the book of Ecclesiastes if you're disconnected from God. Does that make sense? So if you're connected to God, some of the things that he says are not true. Um, that's why you have to be careful with the book of Ecclesiastes. So when we look at this, he's making this declaration that, you know, you're going to see oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. Do we see that? Do we say perverting of you know, justice and, and, uh, and you know the, uh, should we marvel at the matter? As he says, don't marvel at it. Um, but then he makes this argument because God is higher than the highest. And he's going to take care of it. He's going to intervene. He's going to do something about it. Now, if Solomon's saying that to help us not to stress out about it, um, that's great. But if he's doing it, and, and I suspect that Solomon, the wealthiest guy on the planet... Uh, the king, the guy that's just kind of chilling and what have you. Um, I I suspect he's saying it because he's so, it's all a waste of time. Don't even care for the poor because God's going to take care of it. I get the sense that Solomon is kind of saying, yeah, God's got it. So I'm not going to worry about it. That's sort of the attitude of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's just saying it's all a waste of time. It's all vanity. But one of the things you and I know that the Bible tells us all about caring for the poor. And it's something that God wants to use his church to be the ones who actually do care for the poor. And you see that all through the New Testament. And that's why we should individually be uh, concerned about the poor, but also corporately as a church, we should be concerned about the poor. And we do, we do help the poor. We reach out uh, in ways on missions around the world, but also locally here, um, we try to help the poor all the time. Um, Our pastoral staff is constantly meeting with people who are in need and you know uh, in trouble and uh, we as a congregation get to be a part of that helping of the poor and that's something we love to do but the question is why is Solomon saying this it seems that it might be chalked up as God's got this and it's all a waste of time for us anyway Um, it's all vanity under the sun if that's what he's saying watch out for that attitude because that can creep in to us especially if we're disconnected from God God has a a compassionate heart for those that are in poverty. And one of the things we as Christians have to remember, and and especially, you know, if you're from more of the conservative political persuasion, there's kind of this notion of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get a job, you know. And, And there's certain truth to that. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. The Bible does say that. But at the same time, you see constantly in the Bible, a real compassionate heart. And um, you know, the Lord Jesus himself spending a lot of time with the poor. And uh, even Peter, James and John's, you know, walking into the gate beautiful. And they see the guy that's asking for alms and they stop. And you know, the whole walking and leaping, praising God, silver and gold. And, and you know, they, they went and ministered to the guy that was in poverty. Watch out for an attitude that says, yeah, we don't need to care about the poor. God's got this. God does have this, but he wants to use us as his hands and his feet to care for the poor. And the reason I say this is because I wonder if that's going to be part of what you and I are judged for at the judgment seat of Christ. When you and I stand at the bema seat judgment, you know, when we're judged for our works, um, I wonder if we're going to be lacking maybe as American, Christian, successful, wealthy people. And what did we do with our wealth? And were we those willing to reach out and help and and, and reach out to the poor. I wonder if that's going to be on the register uh, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Man, I think we should be careful about that one. Watch out for kind of an attitude about the poor. Um, But to be helpful, that's the idea. Um, So, uh, God sees these people, Solomon's right, uh, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, or sees, and there be higher, uh, higher than they. In other words, the Lord's got it, got it, and he also sees the people who are, you know, violent and the perverting of judgment. He sees that too, and it'll, it'll be the Lord will pay them back. So in verse 9, there's a shifting of gears. In fact, verse 9 all the way through chapter 6 now, uh, Solomon is going to talk about wealth. It's almost like he's trying things. He talks about pleasure. He talks about power. He talks about, you know, um, all the stuff that's vanity under the sun. But now he's going to kind of focus on the idea of wealth. Verse 9. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth abundance with increased. This is also vanity, Emptiness. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? What's this all about? Well, you know, you can be wealthy and have lots of food, but interesting, more people show up at your house wanting to eat your food. That's what he's saying. Um, And they're going to increase. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Um, Those of you that have children know how that looks. Um, especially when your kids get into that grade school, middle school, pretty soon they're growing children and they, they can eat, you know, a lot of food. And if you're, a, you know, I remember Deb and I looking at our food bill, wow, uh, it was amazing. They are increased, that eat them, that's true. Um, but the idea is as a king, Solomon's saying, man, the more we have, the more people just want to sit around and eat your stuff. What good is it to the owners there? If, if, you're, if you're wealthy, but everybody's just coming and sort of tagging along with your wealth. That's the idea. Um, Except you can see them. That's all you get. You get to see them eat your food. (laughs) That's his attitude. Verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun. Namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. He's seeing that thing that you and I all see, the thing that we were talking about earlier with suicidal tendencies within Hollywood actors and famous people and stuff. You can see them with their, in their wealth, but you can also see, man, they're unhappy. And it's like the person who's just a hardworking laborer sleeps better than the Hollywood actor. Boy, I knew that to be true. I remember when I was in high school, one summer I worked as a hod carrier for a brick mason. Uh, has anybody in here been a hod hard, hard carrier before? Man, you guys know, it's, it's one of the hardest jobs out there, at least the, the one I did. And, and I remember, uh, you know, you just, you, it's like you're working out uh, just eight hours a day with bricks and, and uh, concrete and, you know, you know, a mortar and all that. And you're just, you're just, uh, it's just hard work. But all that to say, uh, man, I've never slept better in my life. After a day of hod carrying, man, I just, before my head, even hit the pillow, I was sawing logs. Um, But it's funny, you know, when when you have uh, more wealth and you're just kind of not doing that kind of labor, it it seems that sometimes your sleep may not be quite as sound. That's what Solomon's saying. I wonder if he, with his soft, kingly hands, kind of felt like, man, I can't even go to sleep tonight. Um, And he had too much to worry about. See, I wonder if sometimes wealthy people don't sleep very well because they've got too much to worry about. Um, Maybe that's part of the deal. But he says riches are kept for the owners thereof to their own hurt. It's going to hurt them. That's the idea. Watch out. But verse 14, those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son and there is nothing in his hand. Um, Interesting, you know, uh, he begets a son and then the son has nothing in his hand. What happens? Well, you earn all this money, then you die and your son gets your money. And then uh, he ends up losing all the money. That's what Solomon's saying. Um, boy, that's a true statement. Riches perish by evil travail." And once you have children, it's going to be... You know, there's a, a, a lady that's kind of famous um, from the late... Or I should say, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, who made the Guinness Book of World Records as the most miserly, miserly woman in history. Uh, Hattie Green was her name. You can look it up, she's still the most miserly. She was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, like, um, like hundreds of millions of dollars back then. She was the wealthy, wealthiest woman in the world at the time, um, but she was miserly. Um, she had this huge house, but she shut off all the rooms and lived with her uh, two children in just one of the little rooms and so she wouldn't have to heat the whole house. She would send her son out to get the newspaper uh, he'd bring it in, she'd read it, and then she'd carefully fold it back up and have her son go out and sell it again to get it, so that she didn't have to get the money. And it gets worse. Um, her son was out in the street, uh, and he broke his leg. And so she rushed him to the you know, the free medical clinic, but it was closed that day. So she didn't want to go to the hospital because so she, she didn't want to have to pay for it, even though she had hundreds of millions of dollars. So she tried to fix his leg herself, but she did a bad job. He got gangrene, and he had to have his leg amputated. Like like the story just goes on on this lady who, who was just the richest woman in the world, but she just didn't want to spend a dime on anything, especially when it came to her children. And then, you know, once she died, her, her children inherited the money and then they, you know, passed it down and just and ended up fizzling. But, you know, it, it, it's kind of like that. You know, there's this weirdness that happens with extreme wealth. Solomon, he's saying, man, you know, uh, those riches perish and they end by travail or trouble is what he's saying. Um, Verse 15, as he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Um, In other words, there's no U-Haul following the hearse. And and verse 16, and this also is a sore evil that in all points as he came, so shall he go. What profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days He also, he eateth in darkness and he hath much sorrow and wrath in his sickness. Man, he's just bummed out. Riches are not the answer. You end up empty. You can't take it with you. You just go down to the grave. That's kind of what he's saying. Verse 18. Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Interesting that Solomon kind of ends this realizing that, well, maybe it's all a gift from God. And uh, this is where he's touching on. Remember, I told you Solomon has moments of speaking truth uh, here in this in this book. This is one of those moments, and it's true. You know, James chapter one verse seventeen kind of echoes in the New Testament, sort of what Solomon's saying there in the Old. In, in James one seventeen, it says, "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning." Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the father of lights, comes down from the father of lights. And that's what Solomon is saying. Maybe God gives you all this stuff. The problem is Solomon doesn't understand what it's really for. See, in the New Testament, we understand God gives us good gifts, but it's not there just to make us happy as much as we we are to ask, how are we to please the Lord with what he's given us? That's the, the thing that Solomon seems to be missing. The the eternal weight that uh, comes from a person who takes their wealth and uses it for God's purposes. Um, There's nothing cooler, by the way, than a wealthy person who knows how to be giving and knows how to serve the Lord with their wealth. One of the motivational gifts of Romans chapter 12 you know, along with, you know, Bible teaching is what I love to do. And there's other, you know, Romans 12 sort of gifts, administrative gifts and certain things that people do. But one of those gifts that's listed there in Romans 12 is giving. And usually the person who has a gift of giving has also got a gift of earning. (laughs) They know how to, you know, make a good living. Uh, I never forgot, I got to see a little snapshot of this um, one time where, um, uh, I went to this couple's house and, um, and what was interesting about that was um, that they were really wealthy. Um, they had a beautiful home. I, I'm going to guess and say it was probably a 5,000 square foot home and uh, it was like a, a mansion. I'd never seen a house that big. And uh, we went through there and, and had dinner. And, and the reason we were there is they were prepping me to go to Africa the first time with them. And so uh, we, we met them and I was just kind of blown away. And, and, um, but they, they loved going to Africa. And they'd been many, many times. I, I'm guessing, you know, more than a hundred times. Like they, they, every year they'd go multiple times for many, many years. They went to Africa and they would go over there and help the church. In Burkina Faso, Africa. That's how I was introduced to Burkina Faso through this couple. But we we got to Burkina Faso. We landed. We drove in this little car, all stuffed in this little car that was sweaty and hot. And and we drove out way out into the bush. uh, And then we all, uh, you know, kind of started ministering out in this place in the middle of nowhere. 120 degrees. Like it was crazy how, um, you know, uh, out there it was. And hard, hot, sweaty. And there were no mats, there were no beds, there were no place to sleep except on the dirt. Um, and I remember seeing this couple, you know, a few weeks earlier I saw them in their beautiful home. A few weeks later I saw them sleeping in the dirt um, with a bunch of African people uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And I saw what they were doing, and, and, and then I watched them over the years. Uh, and uh, Jan and Jerry, they, they, uh, they, would, they would come home, and he just had a gift of learning how to... You know, he just knew how to make money, build a subdivision, take all the profit of that and run to Africa and build churches and dig wells and help people in Africa and share the gospel. And I remember just watching how the Lord just blessed all of his business endeavors. And, you know, they were happy in their nice house uh, at home, but they were never happier when they were sleeping in the dirt with a bunch of African people. It was just really something for me to see. And I remember thinking, that's the person that's got a gift of giving, a heart of giving. Um, that's why I think the Lord was blessing their socks off financially because they knew how to use it for His kingdom. And He was careful in how He used that money for Africa. And I learned a ton from Him in the way that He did that. And, uh, you know, I wonder if some of you might have that gift. Uh, and the question is are you using it for God, for His purpose, for His kingdom? If you're one who's gifted in earning, maybe you have the gift of giving. And if you do, one of the great things about that is you will never be able to outgive God. That's the one thing the wealthy people that I know that have that gift, they, they learn. You cannot give enough of it away. And the Lord just keeps blessing them with more and more to give away. And uh, that's something that's pretty cool when you see somebody who actually gets it and sees it. Well, that's, that's the thing. Um, Solomon seems to have all the wealth, but he doesn't really know how to use it. That's the problem. Well, chapter 6 continues with this theme of wealth in verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul and all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Okay, what's this all about? There's a person that's wealthy and has all the stuff, but he can't enjoy it. Who is that? Um, I heard Jay Vernon McGee tell a story once. Um, uh, he was talking about a friend who was in a restaurant down somewhere like in Florida, real fancy steakhouse. And he saw, you know, J.D. Rockefeller uh, at the time, one of the wealthiest guys in the world. And he was there eating some like, salad and some just a few little bits of food and you could tell it was like very healthy and very limited it was like just a tiny little bit of food and then there was this guy that worked in the restaurant and he was sitting off over the side eating a huge thick juicy steak and uh, he observed that Rockefeller it looked like he had some kind of issue that he couldn't enjoy a nice big juicy steak he had to eat a couple nuts and twigs and that's all he got Um, whereas the person that worked at the restaurant got the steak and uh and And you know Jay Vernon made the comparison there's sometimes people that have the money, but they can't really even enjoy it and It seems that those who have the most are often those who enjoy it the least um, you know it's It's amazing the wealthiest people in the world are they happy, and do they enjoy their wealth um, I, again, speaking of of uh, wealthy situations, I remember a friend of mine uh, we went um, on a trip, me and Deb and the kids went down to uh louisiana a friend of mine was uh the head coach of the new orleans uh pelicans and um and we we went down there and hung out with them well the owner of the pelicans a uh, very wealthy shipping guy billionaire guy he uh told told my friend Monty, he said hey uh take take your friends down to the 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 boathouse you know or the uh, whatever and um i was thinking cool let we get to go to what do you call this the houseboat um, so we're like, oh, we're going to go stay a houseboat. And me and the kids and dad, we were all excited because we were picturing like a houseboat, like, a, like on Lake Shasta, you know, one of those houseboats. We went to this houseboat of the owner of the New Orleans Pelicans, who also owns the New Orleans Saints um, at, the, at the time. And um, the houseboat was three stories high, had two elevators, had 12 servants that worked there full time. It had a yacht attached to the houseboat, a shrimp boat attached to the houseboat, and then a small other kind of yacht attached to the houseboat. And, um, and we could take whatever we want for a spin. Uh, of course, there was a captain there who would take the... Uh, we walked in and the, the 12 people that worked there were so excited. They hadn't seen anybody for over a year. They said, oh, we get to cook. We get to, we're so excited. Come on in. And we're like the first guest. Like, like, and, and, and I, apparently the owner, he'd like never been there. He'd never been to his houseboat uh, that he made. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'll stay there Whatever you want. Uh, we can keep your staff sharp, you know, and... <laughs> But uh, we went and had a a nice lunch there, and they cooked amazing food. And it was like the crew was all excited to see real people. Um, But I thought, you know, what a waste. This is a beautiful thing this that nobody ever uses, you know. um, It was a huge houseboat, not much smaller than this room. be that as it may uh, that 's how the other half lives, uh, <laughs> as it turns out, uh, but it was it was fun to see just for, a, for an afternoon but all that you know that 's what Solomon is saying there 's people that have all this wealth, but somehow it, it, it seems like they can 't even enjoy what they have, and that 's true, and that 's again where it gets down to wealth is it a good thing or a bad thing and the answer is it can be a real bad thing if you, you know if you 're hoping to find happiness in your wealth or or uh, looking to your wealth to be your salvation or anything like that. But if you realize your wealth is God-given for a purpose, for his purpose, for his reason, then it starts to make sense. But Solomon's in that place, disconnected from God, wealthiest guy on the planet. He says, it's a total waste and I can't even enjoy it. That's the idea. Well, verse 3, if a man beget a hundred children, which Solomon probably did if you think about it, um, And live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he hath no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, Though he live a thousand years, twice told, or two thousand years, yet hath he seen no good, do not all go to one place? The idea is the grave. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes. Than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? He's saying, man, you can't tell the future. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's interesting because he says in verse 9 better in this is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. The things you actually can see, uh, it's better than what you were hoping for, you know, wishing about. Um, and this is where Solomon's seeing that which is only under the sun, that which can be seen with the eyes that which could be enjoyed in a real practical way. And he's saying everything else is a waste of time. Um, and he's, he's talking about that which you're coveting or the things you're envious about. Um, when he's, There's some mystical language that you may have noticed, like in verse five, moreover, he hath not seen the sun nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. He's, he's, he's like, you know, speaking like the stillborn baby that never got to see the light of day. He's saying that's what it's like. And he's, he's talking in fairly dark and sad terms about the person who lives. Even if he lives a 1,000 years or 2,000 years and has a bunch of kids, it's just all vanity under the sun. And you don't know what's going to happen. It's just more despair, more sadness, uh, and more emptiness. Even though Solomon has everything that a man could ever want, uh, he still sees it as empty apart from God. Verse 7 chapter seven, pardon me, verse one. We looked at it on Sunday. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of one's, of, of the day of death than the day of one's birth. Um, we talked about a good name, better than ointment. And what's a good name? Well, there are no good names. Only uh, Jesus could be called good. We looked at that. But he makes our name good, righteous, as were written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's when your name becomes good imputed righteousness and we talked about how the day when you're in the lamb's book of life suddenly the day of your death is better than the day of your birth when you are born again into new life and we talked about that on sunday and by the way you know it's it's great i love when we get to talk about the gospel and and these terms because it it's um, something i love to do every sunday But last Sunday, we had more than 35 people accept Christ between Saturday night and the three Sunday services, which is, I think, awesome. Yeah, isn't that great? I love to hear that, see that. It's pretty pretty amazing. Um, But it's because, you know, having your name written in the book of life, that's the most important thing. So um, we looked at that verse 1 on Sunday. He goes on in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Um, Man, now he's talking, what is he talking about? He's like, man, it's better just to go to a funeral than to a feast. That's what he's saying. Uh, Why would it be better to go? It's like he wants to die. He wants to end it all. Um, He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that's the end. That's the way it's all going to turn out. Why waste your time with the feasting? Because you're going to end up with the mourning. Um, and the, the living will lay it to his heart. In other words, he'll see it and say, yeah, I guess we are all dying. And that's kind of his outlook. Um, by the way, this reminds me of Paul's sort of argument in First Corinthians chapter 15, um, verse 16. You know, he said, for if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you're yet in your sins. Um, then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He's saying the same thing Solomon's saying, only rhetorically saying, and that's not the way it is. Paul's saying, we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. If in this life only, see, that's the problem. Under the sun, that's Solomon's worldview, this life only. And and Solomon said, yeah, if if, if this life only, we only have, you know, we might as well just go straight to the funeral um, and not waste our time with this life. But that's the problem. He's only talking about under the sun. Paul says, nope, we get to be under the sun, S-O-N, resurrection power, great stuff. So um, there uh, Solomon is missing out on the main part of what God's plan is. Well, then he goes with another sort of juxtaposition, not only the the funeral or feasting now he's going to go to sorrow or laughter he says in verse three chapter seven verse three sorrow is better than laughter for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth um he's he's basically saying that um We might as well face everything, see the sorrow, see the mourning for what it is and forget being joyful because there's nothing to be joyful about. Um, That's a pretty depressing outlook. Um, Is there ever room for mirth or laughter? Yes. Um, I I believe that the Bible shows us that God actually does in fact, have a sense of humor. Um, It's funny stuff, Balaam riding his donkey and the donkey turns on, what are you doing? Starts talking to him. And Balaam starts talking back. Uh, And Balaam's not so smart. The donkey's smarter than Balaam. And it's this great story in the Bible. Even the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about, you know, um, man, you, you know, you're trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a beam in your own eye. Like, that's funny stuff. A Picture a beam in your eye. That's, a, that's, that's quite a splinter you got to get out of there. Um, Jesus was being like hyperbolic in his exa- example. Uh, yeah, you got a beam walking up, boom, boom, coming out of your eye. Uh, and you're trying to get the splinter out of somebody else's. Great analogy, kind of funny. I wonder if people were chuckling when Jesus said that. Uh, it's possible, don't know for sure. But I do know that Jesus, the Bible says of Jesus that he was anointed with the oil of what? Gladness. Um, he wasn't the, you know, the, the Jesus on the TV movies that was, looked like he'd smoked a few too many joints and uh, was sunken eyes and very grave and very serious. And when he walked, his feet not moving, but his robe floating across the ground. Uh, that, that's not the Jesus, I believe, of the Bible. Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. And also, little children don't run up to the guy that looks like the hippie from the 60s that's wasted. Little children run up to the happy adult guy. The guy that's joyful, the guy that they run up and want to sit on his lap, that's Jesus. It was the disciples who were saying, get these kids out of here. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me. I guarantee that Jesus had a joyful demeanor. And so this whole notion that Christians should be demure and so sad and very grave, um, that's just an invention of people. And uh, church, churches and denominations sort of, there's certain churches, man, you walk in, you better not crack a smile. And the pastor for sure better not crack a joke because we know that's unholy, um, which is ridiculous. Um, Again, just stupid traditions of people. Um, The Lord gave us humor and I'm thankful for that. Um, Well, all that to say Solomon doesn't get that because he's just depressed. Um, So he says there in verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's saying it's foolish to be joyful under the sun apart from God. Verse five, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. Now this is a really funny little phrase. And when you look at the original language here, it's, it's, it's actually funnier because Solomon is using a play on words. In the Hebrew, the word here for thorns and the word for um, crackling, uh, they're the same Hebrew word, um, sarah. It's like, okay, sarah, sarah. Remember that Doris Day song? Same word in the Hebrew, sarah, is both thorns and uh, this idea of the, uh, the crackling. Um, and he's, uh, he's making sort of a play on words. If, if he would have said this in Hebrew, um, people would have kind of recognized he's just kind of saying something that's f- sort of funny. But the idea is, when you're going to try to cook or boil water under a pot, can you do it with a few thorns? Can you heat up a pot with a bunch of crackled up thorns? No. You need, you need that, you know, maybe you can start a fire with thorns, but you can't get a pot of water hot with thorns. You need wood and log or fuel that's going to burn hot and long. Um, and that's the idea. He's saying you can't do it. Um, that's, he's, that's what he's saying. Laughter of the fool is just emptiness. You can't cook anything with it. Which again, apart from God, that's, that would be his view. Verse seven, surely oppression maketh a wise man mad and a gift destroyeth the heart. Um, the word destroying the heart could also be translated as perverts judgment. Um, oppression maketh a wise man mad and a gift destroys the heart or perverts judgment. Um, by the way, do you notice the nature of these um, scriptures of chapter seven, it's shifting gears to be sort of echoing the book of Proverbs. Did you notice that? That he's starting to talk the language of Proverbs here, which is kind of interesting. He's kind of, you know, he's, remember how Proverbs are sort of A and B, you know, this and this and this, then this and this and this. And, and we, we studied that when we were in Proverbs. He's kind of going back to that technique and he's saying some stuff that's true. Um, but again, it's our job to sort it out. Um, he goes on, Uh, in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Um, Kind of an interesting notion. Uh, Some of you are really good at beginning stuff, but you lose your patience and you don't finish. Some of you are not finishers. Others of you are the kind of people that you'll finish if it kills you. Um, And you're patient to maybe even a fault. Uh, And then there's some of you that are somewhere in between. And Solomon's saying, man, it's better to end the thing than just the beginning. Uh, And he's saying, you know, you can start pridefully something. Hey, I am going to do this. I'm going to start a business and I'm going to make this work. And that person comes up with the glorious ideas but never follows through. And he's making a point that that's the foolish behavior. Be not, verse 9, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Hey, is that a true statement? Yeah, and and we know that because other scriptures, right? Remember, with Ecclesiastes, you have to compare what Solomon's saying with other scripture to see if he's talking about under the sun, S-O-N, or under the sun, S-U-N. And this one works with both. Um, It's true, the Bible tells us to be slow to anger. And thankfully, the Lord is slow to anger. I'm thankful for that about our Lord. Verse 10, say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou doest not inquire wisely concerning this. What's this about? Glory days, <laughs> man. We would have won state if I could go back and play then. And I could, if we did that play the way I wanted to do it, not with the we would have won state. Okay, Uncle Rico, you better kind of back off on that because Solomon's right. The glory days are are not uh, all that they are chalked up to be. That's one thing I've noticed about uh, glory days. It's funny how there's a human thing that happens where we remember the good old days, but they really weren't the good old days. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, I, I, I can see that even in my own life of things that I have fond memories of, but then I really think about it. And I go, Yeah, they were, there were some good times, but there was also a lot of bummers and challenges. And I'm glad we're not living in those days anymore. Um, and, uh, and I think we have to be careful to maybe be focused on here and now. Lord, what do you got for me today? How am I to live today? And I've seen people sort of crippled with remembering the good old days. And it happens the older we get, we can almost lose an ability to be effective because we're stuck in the good old days and we're not willing to see new days, new times, new things that the Lord might be doing. And what I love about the Lord is he moves differently in different times and ages. Um, uh, You know, let me talk to one that kind of hurts. Some of you might even be a little sad by this one, but it might be appropriate. Some of you, if you were like me, you know, we have fond memories of the old songs, you know, from the 80s, 90s, man, when we were, you or even the 60s, maybe you remember Praise One. Once in a while, I bust out my Praise One. Uh, You guys remember Praise One, and then went to Praise Two, and Praise Five Thousand, and then like there, Maranatha. Remember the Maranatha worship praise music from the late '60s, early '70s, and man, we wore that stuff out. When I'd come home from school, my mom would always have Maranatha praise going, and man, it was great. Simple songs, scripture, and um, you know, you know, most of you, even though you don't know how to play guitar, you could play these songs on the guitar. Like they were they were so easy to play and simple to sing and the words easy to memorize and man, it was just glorious. Some of you are like, yeah, Brett preach it, brother. But that was like the sixties and seventies. Do we really want to go back to that? The reason the songs had to be so simple back then is because everybody was just coming off their LSD trips from the their you know, their BC days. Like like they couldn't sing a complicated worship song. That's why they couldn't sing the hymns. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But but uh It was a a great thing for that time, Um, you know, and and, and I have fond memories and and you guys know, uh, I'll bust out the old songs sometimes, uh, even here, uh, because I like them and I, but but one thing you'll note, uh, while I do bust out the old songs, you might think, well, Brad, we're glad you're bringing in the old songs. We don't like these new songs. Well, I can't agree with you on that. I love the new songs. And you know what, it reaches a different generation of ears in a different way than it does some of us older folks who have the fondness for some of the other things. And and we've had people even leave our church. A guy came and said, Brett, you know, we really miss the old songs and you guys have kind of lost it. You know now that they you put the words up on the wall and you caved in and you and you, you know you got the electric guitars and the drums and and uh yeah, we've always had those, uh, but uh we they've just gotten better uh, at that, uh, and maybe the quality and sometimes people are like well that's that's too much quality. We just missed the good old days you know when your guitar was out of tune and and you were uh, you know playing up there, you and Deb you know, and singing, I get it, I love those old days too, but don't be. Uh, short-sighted in that way of the glory days spiritually Um, the Lord moves in in the spirits like the wind and he moves differently in different times sundry times different locations man the key is to say what's the Lord doing right now in his church and uh, I want to be the guy that um, the older I get the more I it's not about the actual style or about you know the lyrics on the wall or just some of the stuff that really doesn't matter as much it's more about what's the Holy Spirit doing how is the Lord moving in today's church? And, and um, man, there's so many things that I think change over the years. And I'm really thankful for that, um, that the Lord does change stuff. And uh, don't be, don't be uh, you know, a grinch on that kind of stuff. Those might just be the glory days. And uh, don't, you don't want to do that. Be careful. Um, well, verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. He's making the argument that wisdom and wealth make a nice couple if you have them both. Sometimes you have wisdom, but you're in total poverty, so how do you actually use your wisdom? Some people have wealth, but no wisdom. He's saying, man, it's a good combo. The problem is, did that work for Solomon? Because he had both. We know for sure that he had both. The problem is he never, you know, most of his life didn't use the wisdom that God had given him. That's why he spent so many years only seeing that under the sun kind of mentality. But he makes a point. Wisdom is a defense, money is a defense. They're both good. Verse 13, consider the work of God for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? You know, you can't really change what God's doing. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Question, can man change what God's doing? Now, this is a tricky question because we believe God's sovereign and he knows all things and he knows the way things are going to turn out. So man can't influence God, right? Well, I'm not going to jump on that one. Because there's some strange things in the Bible. that It's almost like the Lord says, I want you to do certain things and we'll see how it turns out. But the Lord already knows how it's going to turn out. Yep. But isn't it funny that God sort of works with his own sovereignty, but somehow woven in there is our own little miniature sovereignty that he gave us. Uh, let me give you the prime example. Do you remember when the children of Israel were murmuring in the wilderness and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people as they complained against Moses and against Aaron? And, and the Lord said, Moses, step aside. I'm going to fry these people and I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. <laughs> if I were Moses, I'd be like, okay, Lord. <laughs> I'd get away and say, there you go, cook them up. Because they were just horrible to Moses. They were constantly being horrible to Moses. I'd be like, yeah, you're like, Brett, you're our pastor. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) Moses, do you remember what he did? You know, he could have thought, man, it'll be great. I'll be the father of the mighty nation. They'll sing instead of Father Abraham, it'll be Father Moses, had many sons, had many sons, had Father Moses. This'll be great. But Moses didn't do that. Moses, does anybody remember what he did? Yeah, he interceded on behalf of the people. He said, oh Lord, not so. And he went on this really reasonable and, and actually biblical argument saying, Lord, it's your reputation that's on the line here. Don't burn these people up, but be gracious and, and your name will be exalted and the other nations won't have reason to mock your name if you destroy your own people. And and one of the difficult verses of the Bible, and it says, and the Lord repented of the evil that he was going to do to the children of Israel. Oh, Brett, that's, that's tough for me because... The Bible also says God doesn't change; He's never changing. And it sounds like Moses, through his intercession, changed God's mind. What happened there? See, and, and, and that's that's where Solomon's words that, that, yeah, you know, man has no influence. If God makes something that was once straight crooked, man can't fix it. But I think you can't be that cut and dry. Now, now, some of you are struggling. Like Brad, what about God's sovereignty? What about God's, uh, you know, um, understanding of the future and all this? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that God was working something in Moses. Who put it in the heart of Moses? See, I told you I would have fried the people and said, Father, you know, Father Brett, Father Brett had many sons. I would have gone that route. Moses, who put it in the heart of Moses to be compassionate to a complaining, murmuring bunch of Jews? I believe it was the Lord. I think it was the Lord who put it in the heart of Moses to pray for those rebellious people. And the Lord knew he was gonna do that. And the Lord knew that he wasn't gonna destroy those people. But for Moses's development, for his leadership, the Lord put that on his plate and Moses passed with flying colors. And by the way, that's what prayer does. Prayer doesn't change the hand, move the hand of God. It changes the heart of man. Moses, in his prayer and interceding for those people, the Lord was working within him some of those leadership characteristics that I think God wanted to work in him all along. So yes, God is still sovereign, but somehow there's an equation that you and I don't understand, but you and I still are to intercede and pray for those things. And even though it seems that God might be doing one thing, we can pray about the other and say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. But there's something about people praying on their knees before God that, and you, you might say, well, we can't change God. Well, I wouldn't just say that. That's a clumsy way of putting it. Uh, it's a much greater equation than you and I can understand. But I love how Moses just prayed and interceded on behalf of the people. And God, God did it. So don't let Solomon get you down when it comes to this idea of verse 13. Can you know God, if he makes something crooked, can a man make it straight? Well, the answer is seek the Lord. Ask him. Humbly request and see what the Lord does. Because who knows, the Lord might be trying to work within you something uh, that's, that's good. So he goes on in verse 15, all things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness and there is a wicked man that prolongs his life in his wickedness. Remember Psalm 73, you know, why do the wicked prosper? That's kind of where Solomon's going here. Verse 16, be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldst thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from the, this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of all of them, or of them all. Um, so you know, um, don't defend or try to stand up for your own righteousness, but also don't try to stand up and defend your wisdom. Um, or your wickedness, um, you know. Don't be over righteousness. You might call it self-righteous, is what he's saying. Verse nineteen: Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sins not. Is that true? Verse twenty: What Solomon is saying. Yeah, uh, it's almost like Paul borrowed that from Solomon. Romans, you know, thirteen. Talks about that kind of stuff, uh, five. Um, also, verse 21, um, it says, also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. Um, you know, don't, don't pay attention to everything that is being said about you or about stuff. That, that's a hard one, isn't it? Have you ever had people talking bad about you and not paying attention to that's kind of hard? Um, That's kind of what he's saying. Don't take heed unto all the words, verse 21, that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For, verse 22, oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou likewise hast cursed others. (laughs) Boy, that's an interesting thing. Solomon's saying, yeah, people are saying bad stuff about you, but you've said bad stuff about other people, so chill. One of the things you and I should probably be careful about is getting hung up on what people say about us. And especially the more effective you are in ministry, serving, the more people are gonna say stuff. And I've seen, you know, in my own tendency to get sort of hung up on what people say. And you kind of have to just, you know, um, let that bounce off you. I remember my pastor when I was younger, he said, Brett, when you teach a Bible teaching, you're gonna have your critics and you're gonna have people that love what you did and um, he said, here's, here's what you need to be careful. He said, don't ever believe your own press clippings. Don't believe them. Whether they're good or bad, don't believe them. If people are like, oh, that was the most amazing teaching, they're lying to you. Or if they come and say, that teaching was from the pit of hell, they're lying to you. Um, don't believe your press clippings. What matters is kind of what the Lord is saying and what he's doing. And that was good advice. And I didn't even know how much I'd have to employ that don't believe your press clippings kind of thing over the years. And some of you might have to have that advice taken as well. That's kind of what he's talking about. Verse 23, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. And to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands or bonds. Who pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. He's talking about the same woman we talked about all through the Proverbs, the strange woman who ends up you know, taking you for a ride. That's what he's, he's warning against here. Verse 27. Verse 27. "'Behold, this have I found,' saith the preacher, "'counting one by one to find out the account, Yet, uh, "'which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. "'One man among a thousand have I found, "'but a woman, all those have I not found.'" <laughs> uh, apparently not. He, he's got a thousand wives, or, you know, 300 concubines, 700 wives, and he says, "'Still looking for that woman, found one man in a thousand. Uh, I don't know what to make of that, (laughs) but I'll leave that for you guys to figure out. Verse 29, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Or the idea is, you know, God made us upright, but we create or invent evil things is kind of the idea. That's Solomon's outlook. That's where he's at. You kind of see that Solomon is sort of in and out of truth, and he's weaving in his frustrations but this is the kind of thinking that goes into a person that's disconnected from God, not really walking with God. And things don't make sense when you're not really walking with the Lord. Um, man, what a, what a key, what an important thing to remember. So as we continue through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see a little bit of a shifting of gears next week as we uh, reach into chapter 8. And we'll see what the Lord says to us through this book. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, as we continue to travel through Ecclesiastes, we see the worldview of a guy who's struggling and wrestling and really not walking in truth, trying to find wisdom and trying to live wisdom, but but acting foolishly and and the despair and the depression and all that stuff. Lord, we, we see that same tendency within human nature today to try to find the answer to life apart from your son, Jesus. And Lord... One thing Solomon's right is um, under the sun, there's nothing worthwhile. It's all vanity. But under the sun, Esau, and under your son, Jesus, who came to die on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose from the grave, that we might have life and that we can be born again into new life. Lord, we know that everything becomes important, that all things are working together for good for those who love God. Those are called according to the purpose of God. Lord, we know that there's so much good, and even the bad things, you turn them out to be good. You you take what even Satan means for evil, and you're able to work it out for good. So, Lord, as Solomon struggles with us, help us to grow and be mature believers, walking with you, trusting in you, knowing that you work everything out. So we commit this, Lord, this time in your word, and pray that it bring forth good fruit this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, We encourage you to visit us anytime at com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.